welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. This is JF. For a good part of my childhood, my after-school babysitter was a middle-aged French-Canadian woman we affectionately called Mammy. Mammy was a fastidious woman. She didn't like my brother and I wandering around the apartment, so our area of play was restricted to the kitchen and the hallway. Fortunately, the hallway was where Mammy kept her small collection of books, which included a picture Bible that I became fascinated with. One image that seared itself into my mind was of an angel leading Lot and his wife out of Sodom, the city it had just destroyed with divine fire. What struck me was the cold indifference in the angel's eyes. It made it more terrifying than any demon. Demons are closer to humans because they've fallen into evil. Angels haven't fallen, and they aren't evil. They are pure, unchanging, and in their static purity they appear absolutely indifferent to our plight. In his book, The Face of God, the British philosopher Roger Scruton writes about the peculiar nature of that divine love that drives the angelic hosts. He describes a sculpture of an angel found in a French cathedral. Quote, The smile on the angel's face makes us uncomfortable. It is not the tender smile, the smile of the flesh that one lover confers on another or that a mother confers on her child. It has a willed and abstract quality. This smile has not been called forth onto the angel's face by the particular person who is its object, for agape, the love of God, makes no distinctions and may have no particular person in mind. Unquote. The smile of the angel is inhuman. It is the smile of the mad scientist who knows what's best for his patient and for whom the patient's cries for mercy are insignificant in light of the great operation of which she is part. Mammy believed in angels, as well as werewolves, vampires, fairies, and ghosts that inhabit your dreams. She would tell us stories about the other world and the ill-fated humans who dared consort with its inhabitants. So when I read Mrs. Rinaldi's Angel, the story by Thomas Ligotti that we discuss in the following episode, I think of Mammy. I remember her wicked smile as she described the terrible beauty of angels glimpsed in the woods of northern Quebec. She scared the crap out of me but I thank her for it. As one member of the group Ligotti refers to as the entrepreneurs of the intangible, Mammy knew the weird power of dreams. She knew that fantasies and nightmares have their place in the great clamor of existence, that they are part of the world and must be reckoned with. This is exactly what Mrs. Rinaldi teaches the boy in the story, and it's what Ligotti shows us in all his work. As he writes in Songs of a Dead Dreamer, quote, the highest aim of the realistic author is to prove, in realistic terms, that the unreal is real. Before we begin, I'd like to thank the wonderful listeners who have made the leap and become patrons of Weird Studies. Thanks to you, we're able to put more time and energy into making this show as good as it can be. If you're a fan of Weird Studies but aren't yet a patron, take a look at our Patreon page. Even a $1 monthly pledge makes a difference. 
In fact, if all our listeners gave us a dollar a month, Phil and I could conceivably quit our day jobs and who knows, maybe make this a weekly show. Anyway, patron or not, thank you. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Perhaps appropriately, uh, you might hear thunder at various points during this conversation because uh, we're, we've got thunderstorms today, which seems appropriate for talking about horror fiction and various ideas pertaining thereto. Yeah. The darkness. If I look out my window right now, it's uh, we're buried in snow right now. So it reminds me of that line from Ligotti's story, The Last Feast of Harlequin, where the narrator exults as he sinks into what he calls a, a, the velvety white abyss of nothingness. <laughs> so we're both in a, an appropriate setting to discuss Thomas Ligotti, finally, and dreams and angels. I've been putting this off just because my knowledge of Ligotti is so thin, but yours is fairly thick. So you can, maybe if you take the average of the two of us, we come out to being like just kind of a normal person who likes Ligotti. <laughs> that, that would be the average. He's one of the two or three authors whom I've read from A to Z. Like I've read everything he's written. There aren't many of those for me. I'm I'm a pretty sporadic and I'm a dabbler, you know. So yeah. uh, I feel like I know an author when I've read like one thing he wrote or she wrote mm -hmm. um, in general. But in Ligotti's case, um, I got kind of hooked uh, at one point and I read everything. So... I do, I do feel like very uh, close to his to his fiction, but I don't know if that translates to any sort of insight. <laughs> so, how prolific is he? I mean, you say you've read all of his stuff. Um, how great an achievement is that? That's a good point, actually, because <laughs> the reason it was easy to read everything he wrote is because he's hardly written anything. <laughs> so he has. Uh, I don't remember exactly how many, like four or five collections of short stories that he's put out since the early 80s. Songs of a Dead Dreamer, uh, Noctuary, Teatro Grotesco, a little novella with a couple of stories called My Work Is Not Yet Done. And then recently he put out, a few years ago, he put out a, just two stories and a little limited edition hardcover book called The Spectral Link. Oh yeah, and there's also Grim Scribe. That's probably the most successful of his collections. And then he 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 wrote a single. He wrote he's written a few essays, and he wrote one book of nonfiction called "The Conspiracy Against the Human Race," in which he lays out his case for antinatalism and nihilism. And uh, yeah, so see, he's basically the king of the weird right now, as far as literary culture goes. I think he's he's seen as the scion or the inheritor of Lovecraft's legacy, and he's carried that forth um, and taken it in new directions. I think um, mm. very interesting guy. I had the good fortune and to to have a quick a short correspondence with him for a few weeks uh, several years ago. He's a very fascinating guy. He's he's, uh, he's got a brilliant mind. 
And he's surprisingly, in my experience anyways, and the experience of everyone I've read, a very kind and warm guy, despite his ridiculously dark uh, output. <laughs> I like to imagine that the correspondence ended when one day you got, went outside and found a small, soft cloth poppet lying on the hood of your car. And that somehow... <laughs> Represented the end of the correspondence. No yeah. idea how it got there. That's that's pretty close to what actually happened, but I can't talk yeah. about what actually happened. Yeah, you wake up <laughs> next day and you find it's in different parts of the house. No, nobody seems to know anything about it. Yeah. Uh, no, for real. I mean, we, I've written to him a few times since then, and he's always been very uh, generous uh, and replied promptly. Um, when I wrote an essay about symbols a few years ago i sent it to him and he read it and sent some comments and he's he's probably got a lot of correspondence and a lot of things to do so and he keeps um, himself very much to himself as as i understand it yes he's definitely uh not um you know a, a social butterfly <laughs> it's more like a lone nocturnal moth I, I was thinking about this as i read mrs rinaldi's angel last night and as I got deeper into it, I'm like, this is so fucking good. Like, this is so good. You know what? Like when you're listening to a band that somebody's just put you onto and you're in that early stage where you're like, this is good music. Yeah. Like if just for a second, you get a glimpse of, you know, not how this particular song is good music, but just what it means for music to be good. The goodness yes. of music reveals itself briefly, glimmeringly, this as an abstraction behind the concrete listening experience. This happens with writers too, where you encounter a new literary voice and you're like, this is good writing. And for a second, you're just sort of like encountering what it is for verbal expression to do this kind of magic, this mysterious power of written words to conjure things that aren't. Yeah. You know what I mean? And this was my experience. And it's funny because I think I put off getting down with Thomas Ligotti because everybody says, and we can get into this, I know that you disagree, but everybody says Thomas Ligotti is the heir to Lovecraft. People refer to him as a Lovecraftian writer or write about him or talk about him in ways that suggest that his project is basically an extension of Lovecraft's. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't hate Lovecraft, but it's not my thing. I don't dig the style. It's just not, you know, stuff that I seek out and read of my own free will. Like I'll read it as kind of homework to do a show, for example, but it's not something I'm just going to stretch out and of an evening and read some Lovecraft the way I will, for example, Robert Aikman, who is, you know, a total favorite writer of mine. But actually realizing that what Ligotti is about is very different from Lovecraft, that that's actually a pretty misleading thing to say, to, to think of him as a kind of Lovecraft monkey. And leaving aside the kind of global question of like, what is their, you know, cosmological orientation or whatever, quite apart from that, just on the level of style, there is something of the profuseness of surfaces in Lovecraft. I think this is something that people love about Lovecraft is that it's sort of <laughs> teeming you know, it's teeming with, there's a lot going on in any given sentence or any given A lot paragraph. of adjectives. A lot of adjectives. Like there's just a lot of busyness. You know, if you were to imagine what would be the visual style equivalent, it might be something very 
intricate, like H.R. Giger or Mobius or something, where there's just a lot going on in any one frame. It's very Baroque in that sense, yeah. Baroque, yes. And Ligotti has something of that too. You know, he's not Ernest Hemingway. But to me, it's the kind of bounteousness of its surfaces, um, mm -hmm. the fullness of its surfaces. But at the same time, it's very, very controlled. Yes. You know, like you might think at first, like the first paragraph, you might think like, wow, there's kind of a lot going on here. And then you might reread the paragraph and realize that not a hair is out of place, not yeah. a word is superfluous, that you couldn't change a thing without it becoming quite different, that the whole thing actually were is as intricately, precisely jeweled kind of Swiss watch-like as like a Don Bartlemy short story, like one of those tiny little one paragraph stories that Bartlemy writes, where the story is almost like a single fused entity. Um, you almost can't find parts to it. You, you can't insert a, the tip of a knife uh, blade anywhere. You know, that kind of solidity it's just like, yeah, Baroque surfaces and yet this kind of extreme compactness and integrity of uh, of the writing. That is unusual, to say the least. I, I suffer a bit from synesthesia. So writers to me have colors and their writings have color in my, in my mind. So if I think of Lovecraft, I'm thinking of shades of gray mixed in with greens and yellows. Mm. When I think of Ligotti, I'm just seeing shades of black. Like um, <laughs> if, if Lovecraft is Giger, that kind of Baroque, intricate, complex kind of world that Giger uh, depicts in his art, well, then Ligotti might be someone like Pierre Soulage. Do you know Pierre Soulage? I do not. He's a French painter who works only in black. He's well worth a look, um, huh. but his paintings are complex and rich and layered somehow. Um, and Lovecraft, like Ligotti to me, when I think of, Love, of Ligotti's fiction, I think of the color black. I mean, it's, um, but it's not the black of a classic Gothic ghost story. It's a rich black that is multifaceted and, and, and rich and complex and labyrinthine. And, you know, it's, it's not, yeah. Yeah. It, it, and yes, you're with, right. With, with, with a, with a multitude of like degrees of gloss and exactly. refractoriness exactly. and light coming off in different ways. And right. yeah, absolutely. There's glittering black and, and, and dull black, gleaming black. There's, a, there's a oily black. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 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 I totally get what you're saying. The other thing, uh, and you were talking about the style there, um, prose style. Again, this kind of reductionism that happens. Two episodes ago, we were talking to Matt Carden about uh, Lovecraft and how um, there's a reductionist kind of move there that a lot of people make, which they mm -hmm. reduce Lovecraft to some philosophy or something. Whereas things in Lovecraft are a little bit more, I would argue, a little bit more um, ambiguous than they might seem to the outsider or to people reading the back of the book or the latest essay. Um, the same is true for Ligotti. And um, I, I think it, it's reductive to call Ligotti Lovecraft's heir and leave it at that because the influences I see in Ligotti, and they're much more pronounced than Lovecraft, are people like Bruno Schultz mm. or uh, Thomas Bernhardt, the, the Austrian writer. Or Poe, for that matter, you know, like mm. uh, there's a lot more going on in, in Ligotti than just a guy trying to emulate Lovecraft, that's for sure. 
and I don't even think they agree on their philosophy. I don't even if you were to boil down their work to a kind of philosophical position, I don't think they would match. I don't think the positions would match. Well, this gets into that essay that you wrote, right. which is great. Which is a great essay, and we should talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah. Do you want to sort of start from the thick end of the wedge or the thin end of the wedge? You want to talk about the idea that you pursue in your your chapter, The Beautiful Madness, Primacy of Wonder in the Work of Thomas Ligotti? Or do you want to start with talking about the story that we were going to discuss for today, which is Let, Mrs. Rinaldi's Angel? I'd say let's start with the story and see where it goes, because the story will make those more abstract ideas a lot clearer to people yeah. once we've gone through it. So let's start there. Mrs. Rinaldi's Angel, which is the second story of his that I read um, in my life. And I, I was just... Now, having read all of them, I would say it's not it's not his best story, but I find that it's philosophically rich and it is it's quite good, actually. Yeah, it's damn good. Yeah. So you just read it. So give me your first impressions um, of the story. Well, I knew that Thomas Ligotti and I were going to get along OK with the following sentence. Nevertheless, while I was deprived of the privilege of a natural rest, there may also have been some profit gained the awful opulence of the dream, a rich and swollen world nourished by the exhaustion of the flesh. Oh, yeah. Jesus Christ. Such a good sentence. Like I need to contextualize that. Like that's in the first paragraph. And it's a first person account of somebody who's talking about an episode of his life when he had nightmares that would just press upon him and were exhausting him. And he would awaken screaming every night and his parents are concerned and they take him to this strange old woman who lives on the outskirts of town named Mrs. Rinaldi. And this is a woman who seems to have some kind of occult skill. You know, she, she seems to traffic in mysterious and eldritch arts. And so she's the one who can perhaps do something for the metaphysical disease that has afflicted the, the narrator who at the time this happens is a boy. So, the sentence that I read is in the context of him talking about what would happen when he would awake screaming after a night of these exhausting nightmares or the not even nightmares, just dreams that just suffocating in their profusion and uh, intensity, their, their weirdness. And he talks about, uh, you know, waking up feeling tired, right? Which if you've ever had nights of extremely vivid and disturbing dreams like that, you know what that's like. I mean, that's actually pretty realistic. You, it's possible to spend a night dreaming so vividly that when you wake up, you feel like you need to get a full night's sleep to recover from the dreaming that you just went through. What I loved was this line, while I was deprived of the privilege of a natural rest, there may also have been some profit gained. Okay, so if I can do what Ligotti, in fact, emphasizes we should not do, which is to strip mine this kind of literature for ideas, in which respect I completely agree with him. But if I were to pull an idea out of that, I would say it's akin to something that we've said many times, which is probably kind of a commonplace of thinking about horror fiction or weird fiction, which is that there's this combination of repulsion and attraction that we're terrified, but there's also this kind of weird exaltation. We talked about that with respect to the 
short story, The Wendigo. Linking that to Rudolf Otto's idea of uh, mysterium fascinans and tremendum, the, the, the mystery that is both fascinating and, and terrible. And terrifying, and, yeah. 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 Exactly. And so that is what I take this sentence to kind of be getting at. It's not saying that that's what this story is quote unquote about, um, or that that's what Ligotti is about. But when I read this, it had the ring of truth, like it, it set up a sympathetic resonance in me because it gave me very much a feeling that I've had on awakening from wrestling with a night of strange dreams, even like when you wake up and you don't even remember your dreams, but you know that you have just been a thousand fathoms deep wrestling with these strange phantasms that have just not let you alone. And you've just lived a whole lifetime that very night. And that idea that like, though you're deprived the privilege of a natural rest, there is perhaps some profit gained. As Ligotti writes, the awful opulence of the dream, a rich and swollen world nourished by the exhaustion of the flesh. That is poetry. And I'm not even going to try and break that down and say like, and the way that that relates to my experience is blah. Um, I'm just going to say that that is like a poetic line that perfectly captures this strange ambivalence of being at once subjected to a kind of grotesque immersion in weirdness that happens in certain nights of dreams and the feeling that you have spent something of yourself and yet on some level that is also a kind of a decadent indulgence, an indulgence of the flesh as well as an expense of the flesh. Right. Something that I like when I'm, you know, when you encounter art, a really great piece of art or something that's new to you, you know, just like hits you a certain way is this feeling of like, oh, I'm not the only person who felt that, that very rarefied, very special emotion that I hadn't even named to myself until this very moment when I found it named or rendered poetically in a line in this story. He also follows up that that passage you, you you just read with a very interesting, very short sentence. He says basically, he says he talks about the the awful opulence of the dream, uh, which belongs to what he calls a rich and swollen world nourished by the exhaustion of the flesh. So already we have this kind of dualism that he builds in the story between these two worlds, the world of the flesh, this world, which is constantly being drained of its life by this other world of dream. But then he says that rich and swollen world of dreams, he says, it is the world as such. That is reality. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the great paradoxes that comes up again and again in Ligotti is the primacy of the unreal over the real. Strangely, paradoxically, what is unreal, dreams, figments of your imagination, superstitions, wild imagination, those things are what actually are seeping life out of this world. And those things belong to what Mrs. Rinaldi in the story calls the old time the original chaos from which things emerged. And what we call reality is actually this little construct, but we'll get to that. Um, so we got as far as the visit. So his mother, and I love the way he describes his mother. Uh, his dad wants him to go see a doctor, but he writes, my mother was always prone to the enticements of superstition and my troubled dreams appeared to justify an indulgence in unorthodox measures. 
Her shining and solemn gaze betrayed her own dreams of trafficking with esoteric forces, of being on familiar terms with specialists in a secret universe, entrepreneurs of the intangible. I love that phrace. <laughs> Ligotti is a very funny writer, unlike Lovecraft. There's yeah. no humor in Lovecraft. There's zero humor. Uh, Ligotti's actually, his stories are replete with funny bits. And that's one of them I find. And then he described a little bit before that, he says, my mother's quest was a more dubious quest for a curative, though one which no doubt also seemed more appropriate to my suffering. So his mother is the one who takes him to see Mrs. Rinaldi. And uh, yeah, maybe we can pick up from there. And Yeah. So Mrs. Rinaldi is, and I love the description of Mrs. Rinaldi. Let me just find it. Yeah. Casually examined, she appeared to present only the usual mysteries of old women who might be expected to speak with a heavy accent whether or not they actually did so. She wore the carnal bulk and simple attire of a peasant race, and her calm manner indeed epitomized the peasant quietude of popular conception. And again, you can hear that kind of like Baroque complexity of language, and yet it's very precise. That's a tricky thing to manage, right? Baroque precision. Um, but I particularly like what he writes next. Those eyes were so pale as was her complexion and gauzy hair. It was as if some great strain had depleted her and was continually depleting her of the strong coloring she once possessed, draining her powers and leaving her vulnerable to some tenuous onslaught. There's something about Mrs. Rinaldi that is not just tenuous, but almost gives a sense of holding herself in integrity against some kind of ongoing, constant, unnamed, and perhaps unnameable force or, or demand. If we just read a little bit more, he's describing the room uh, that he's in. So he's sitting with his mother and Mrs. Rinaldi is listening to them as they describe the, the boy's problems. And then he says, yet there was something so fragile about the balance of these things, the furnishings of the room as if they were all susceptible to sudden derangement, should there be some upset, no matter how subtle, in the secret system which held them together. This volatility seemed to extend to Mrs. Rinaldi herself, though in fact she may have been its source. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so we get the sense already that Mrs. Rinaldi is someone who's been through what the boy's being through. He's, he feels he's being drained or vampirized by these dreams, and she seems to... Um, at least have been able to kind of master, keep hold things together. Uh, although she shares the same predicament or something like that. And so there's kind of a reveal, you know, a metaphysical reveal where we understand what it is we're dealing with here. Mrs. Rinaldi says to the boy, the narrator, do you know what dreams are? They are parasites, maggots of the mind and soul feeding on the mind and soul as ordinary maggots feed on the body. And they're feeding on the mind and soul in turn gnaws away at the body, which in turn, again, affects the mind and the soul and so on until death. This is a kind of an interesting thought. Now, to flip over to this essay that we also looked at in preparation for this show, The Dark Beauty of Unheard of Horrors, this is a great little essay of Ligotti's. And Ligotti starts off by talking about the importance of emotion and the importance also of not 
boiling down weird stories or horror stories to some kind of social or political commentary, some kind of meaning. And I felt like high-fiving him when he writes, years of exegesis have made interpreting supernatural tales into a game that anyone can play. And one finds that gods and demons are quite easily relocated from the dreams in which they were born into some mundane context of sociology, psychology, politics, or whatever. The result is pathetic and in the worst sense of the word, grotesque. <laughs> and then he starts to talk about, as his privileged example of this, the vampire. He says, to see this marvelous, terrifying creature reduced to a plastic Halloween mask for sexual or political repression has been a tedious outrage. And he talks about how the vampire by overexposure, but also overexplication and explication in a particularly allegorical strain. It's exhausted all of the terrifying potential in the vampire. Yeah. Ligotti writes, his nature and habits were always documented in detail, his ways and means a matter of public record. Too many laws lorded over him and all laws belong to the natural world. Like his colleague, the werewolf, he was too much a known quantity. He was a familiar, most of the time, human body, and it was used like a whore by writers whose concerns were predominantly for the body as well as the everyday path in which it walks. And he says, consequently, the vampire is transformed merely into the bad boy next door. And I've never seen anybody articulate as perfectly well something that has always bothered me, not just about vampires, but about almost all of the kind of canonic monsters, right. vampires, zombies, werewolves. They, they never seem scary. And what's interesting about the metaphysical reveal in the middle of Mrs. Rinaldi's Angel, uh, the disclosure that dreams are actually something like organisms and they're parasitic yeah. organisms and they feed upon human vitality and they leach it through our dreams. You know, or each one of our dreams, like we expend something of ourselves. Like if we didn't dream, perhaps we would never die. This is a really interesting idea because if you boiled it down, you're like, oh, this is a variation on a vampire story. Right. It's just that we're turning dreams into vampires. But the thing about dreams is that you ha it already you have to perform a certain kind of mental operation to think of a thought as an entity. Now that's a weird thought and an interesting thought. And Ligotti suggests the outline, the possibility, and he gives us some very vague imagery, but he never ends up personifying or giving a body to these vampires. The fact of vampirism and the effects of vampirism and the source of vampirism, like the meaning of vampirism, becomes tangible and becomes truly horrifying because it's it's been divested of all of that clobber that has made the vampire such a boring, mundane, uh, and unscary figure. He's, he's restoring the vampire uh, to its original monstrous core. Yes. The horror remains this force that's uh, slowly turning us into it, right? Uh, right? That's kind of the thing about vampires. But, um, you know, the thought never occurred to me that <laughs> strangely enough that there was these were vampires. So it's a very interesting thought. The problem with uh, traditional monsters is they get turned into metaphors, right? And the right. minute your monster becomes a metaphor, metaphors are always operating on the human plane, they're one thing you know referring to another thing you know. Right. So the minute the vampire becomes a metaphor for 
I don't know. Consu- talk, yeah, talk, consumerism talk, or some consum- shit. Well, the va- zombies are consumerism traditionally. Right. The vampire yeah. is a metaphor for I don't know toxic masculinity. I don't know the that maybe AIDS in the particular story. Oh yeah, when, there you, you go. Know, yeah, when uh, when something is a, a mere metaphor, it loses its connection with that. What what Ligotti in this story calls the old time, the kind of the the, the realm of of real mystery, and it becomes just a, a human uh, puppet, and that's what happened to the werewolf. Uh, I guess the werewolf would be toxic masculinity. The vampire is more androgynous and would be something like. Maybe even, uh, you know, the vampire has always been linked to the elite. It could be a metaphor for how the rich feed off the poor, that sort of thing. There's all kinds of ways. But all these metaphorical interpretations um, uh, occlude that monstrous core, which is just the fact of something alien draining your life away. And you just sit there helplessly and you realize slowly that the world reality belongs to this thing that's doing this to you. And um, that's what kind of happens in the in the story. That's so. a cool figure ground reversal because like when you say parasite, you think of something like a remora or a right. tick, you know, something that's going for a ride on a larger organism, like the tick that you find on your dog's leg is subsidiary to the dog. But here there's this sort of figure ground reversal where actually the parasite, quote unquote, is the main order of reality. Yeah. It's almost like you're the parasite. Yeah. <laughs> or or you're food. You're you're the plankton. Yeah. And the dream is the is the blue whale. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what she describes. And she develops this cosmology. Um, as she talks to the boy. So she doesn't talk to the boy in front of his mother. She actually takes him into a kind of um, almost a curiosity shop kind of room with all these drawers and cabinets that are closed and he can't see what's in anything. All he sees are surfaces like doors and chests and boxes. And there's no, there are no chairs. So the, the boy's just standing in the middle of the room and Mrs. Rinaldi is kind of like circling him, describing to him uh, the nature of dreams. And um, she says, these dreams, these things that are called dreams are still working to throw us back into that great mad darkness to exhaust each one of us in our lonely sleep and to use up everyone until death. Little by little, night after night, they take us away from ourselves and from the truth of things. And um, they're basically taking us back into what she calls the old time before the world of forms and meaning, the kind of seething dark chaos at the bottom of the world that Ligotti Mm. explores under different guises and names in his fiction. And then she has a treatment for him. So maybe you want, do you want to pick up and describe what she does to help him? Yeah. So she goes to one of these cabinets and she takes out a ancient looking bottle of very dark red wine. He assumes it's wine. (laughs) He assumes it's wine. Right. It's red in any event. Uh, pours a little bit of it out and she says, okay, spit in that. And so he does. It's just, so she takes this mixture of the red liquid and the boy's spittle and she turns off all the lights and he hears her kind of grunting with effort as she shifts something very large that he doesn't see. And then that stops and he sees like the darkness of the room and it's a completely shuttered room and there's no light whatsoever. So it's totally dark. And suddenly this darkness is split by a light and he realizes that she's opening the lid 
of a box and this box contains light. But the weird thing is, this isn't light like a light from a light bulb that shines out and illuminates a room. It's light that has almost a kind of uh, like a substance. It almost seems to have like a mass, uh, a, like a body that is that is light, but it doesn't shine light out, if that makes any sense. It doesn't illuminate the room. All he sees is the box and this kind of misty white lightness. Vaporous, he describes it. Yeah. Vaporous in the box. Yeah. And so Mrs. Rinaldi takes this glass, places it in the box. Right, he, no, she asks him to do it. It's a detail, but. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. So yes, he has to do it. And you've got the, and there's a rather ritual feeling um, to this. And the narrator says something to the effect that he gets the feeling that his offering has been accepted. The, the light turns briefly pinkish. Yes. And then goes back to being white. Another detail is that when he's putting the glass in the box and his hand is in the light, he can't feel his hand anymore. It's like it doesn't exist mm. anymore, which is an interesting detail. Um, that is an interesting yeah. detail. I'd, I'd forgotten about that. So he puts the glass in the box and then she closes the box, turns on the light and basically tells him. It's done. Okay. It's done. And it works, right? It, and, he, and, she, and we don't know what exactly happened. We just know- that it's done and it and in the next few days it seems to work. Yeah, it does for a while. He stops dreaming and he sleeps uh peacefully and and his dreams become very lame and brittle or or weak. His he's still dreaming, but the dreams are really weak and he feels like there's this mist or this vapor protecting him from the the world of dreams and yeah. sometimes he thinks he's dreaming that he's inside that that box with the light it's, it's very weird the way he builds the, the there's a great yeah there's a great um his description of the dreams at night suggests that they're being hobbled in some way so he so he writes that dreams once this mysterious operation has taken place were no more than ripples on great becalmed waters, pathetic gestures of something that was trying to bestir the immobility of a vast and colorless world. A few figures might appear tremulous as smoke, but they were the merest invalids of hallucination, lacking the strength to speak or raise a hand against my terrible peace. And he talks about how his daydreams are actually more interesting because he finds himself meditating in this kind of vacant way. He finds himself fully absorbed in a kind of a, a vaporous um, a kind of cloudy nothing. Yeah, but a, 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 a wakefulness that uh, yeah. kind of like – it's almost the way he describes his life after the treatment – after the ritual, it sounds almost like he's uh, the type of clarity you get when you're suffering from from real insomnia, which I know you hmm. know and I've yeah. known. There's a kind of like absolute clarity where your whole life is clear to you. Everything you're neglecting, everything you're like the whole thing. <laughs> well, kind of. It's 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 the most fatal kind of clarity because it yeah. shows you the worst possible picture of your whole life spread out as if in a diorama. But the spectacle it presents you is a spectacle of loss, futility, uh, ultimate brokenness. Um, okay, well, there. I guess there are degrees. It's like it's 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 like clarity of of absolute fucking despair. At least for me, that's yeah, that's okay. that's that that's that clarity. For me, actually, the description of that kind of vaporous um, beneficence, Numbness. yeah, yeah, is is actually a sort of feeling of um, what I think of as garden variety samadhi in meditation. Mm. 
you know, like uh, if you if you're an experienced meditator, you know, after a few minutes, uh, you're pretty accustomed to just having your mind kind of drop off. And it's kind of hard to put into words, but you're kind of you're not asleep. Your mind isn't occupied by anything. You're not uh, feeling anything. You're it's you're almost like not experiencing anything, but you're certainly there and you're perfectly lucid. So you can't confuse this with sleep. Uh, time goes by way faster. Um, your body is uh, not numb, but it's almost as if you're, I mean, you can sense things perfectly well in your body, but it's almost like your body is sort of beside the point. Yeah. Um, this is what I always took Dogen Zenji to be talking about when he would talk about dropping off body and mind, uh, which he uses almost as a kind of shorthand expression for the experience in Zazen. Not peak experience, not some kind of crazy uh, nirvana, whatever, just dropping off body and mind. That's kind of what this reminded me of, actually. I, I think that we're kind of both right. I mean, he he does have little turns of phrase that would suggest that there's something kind of horrible or malignant about the state he's in still. My terrible peace, you know, and all that. Yeah, um, yeah. But at the same time, uh, yes, you're right. Samadhi is a perfect um, analog or, or description of what he's going through. So the, the, the thing is in Ligati, there's no redemption. So even if you're, <laughs> even if you're doing well, there's something horrible about it. Um, but Eventually, the kid becomes tempted again by the dream world, and he breaks through the uh, the veil that's been put on yeah, him. Yeah, so he's in dreaming, and instead of just beholding this vague, vaporous nothing that is holding back the dreams, he like goes straight into it. Goes straight into it and, and finds the dreams. Now that now that we're talking about this, I'm I remember uh, a, a good friend of mine um, is bipolar. Um, and uh, he's he's gone through the ringer, all kinds of, of things over the years. But for a while, he was on lithium. I think that he was describing lithium when he told me this. But he said that it was like someone puts gauze on your on your mind, like on your huh. brain, and you're huh. seeing everything through this gauze, and this this incredibly heavy bandage, like this. You're swaddled by this mental gauze that that makes you feel numb and but also very very lucid and in the, you know, it does its, mm. it does the work but at a high price yeah. and i felt a little bit like that's maybe what what uh what Ligotti's describing there when he's talking about the boy's condition at that point or what the narrator is describing that's very interesting yeah but eventually he just get he breaks through he he wants that opulence i guess on some of the opulence of the dream and he starts to dream again and then the dreams come back full force worse than ever he's screaming at night and everything's we're right back where we started so his mother takes him back to see mrs rinaldi presumably to complain or to ask for a follow-up treatment they knock at the door and then the door opens just a crack and he gets to see her for just a second. He says she looks greenish and reptilian almost. He describes that she's really, really yeah. sick. And then she accuses the boy of having um, of having fucked up, basically. She said, I knew I shouldn't have given you the cure. Don't you realize that the light in that box was an angel and that now because of you, it's turning into a demon? And we realize that that is the thing that, you know, her, her kind of pale drawn countenance seemed to be speaking of some kind of... Um, she says to this child, you know, even for myself, there's nothing I can do any longer. 
You know what I am saying, child. All those years the dreams have been kept away, but you have consorted with them. I know you did. I have made a mistake with you. You let my angel be poisoned by the dreams which you could not deny. It was an angel, did you know that? It was pure of all thinking and pure of all dreaming. And you are the one that made it think and dream, and now it is dying. And it is dying not as an angel, but as a demon. And she talks about how now the demon has dying has crawled down into her basement to die, which I thought yeah. was a really, really cool little detail. And then, and then she dies shortly afterwards. And people say that she'd been struggling with cancer for a long time. She dies. But then kids break into the house, not the narrator. He never goes, but uh, kids start reporting, seeing something crawling around the house, something they describe as a, a pile of filthy rags crawling yeah. around the house. And then eventually that stops. But then the narrator in the final paragraph, he says, I never saw the filthy pile of rags crawling around, the, the, the remnants of the angel. But he says, but I did dream about this prodigy. I even dreamed about its dreams as they dragged every shining angelic particle of this being into the blackness of the old time. Then all my bad dreams abated after a while, just as they always had and always would, using my world only at intervals and gradually dissolving my life into theirs. And that's how the story ends. And uh, it's a confession of a, a, a man telling a story of the time he killed an angel by dragging it into our world and then infecting it with our dreams. Where do you even start? Yeah. So one possible place we could start is the Manichaeans, the semi-Gnostic yeah. religion that flourished in the, the late Roman Empire. So the, the Manichaeans were, uh, are famous for their dualism, right? They believed in two principles, one of good, one of evil, the world of light and the world of darkness. So in the Manichaean myth cycle, there are three creations. In the first creation... You have the world of light and the world of darkness completely separate and independent of one another until one day the demons of the world of darkness notice the world of light and start to feed on it and they attack it. God sends what, he, what they call the original man to go and fight the world of darkness. And there's a war, but the light loses to the darkness. And then um, the second and third creations are attempts by God to find the light that's been lost into the darkness and to try to, to try to bring it back. And they keep failing. And the, the, according to the Manichaeans, the most recent envoy of the true God was Mani, their, their prophet, the Persian prophet, third century AD. His goal was to undo the mixture of light and darkness, which resulted in our world. So there are very many interesting parallels. One is what you were saying earlier about the light in the box. The light in the box is not a normal light. 
And in Manichaean metaphysics, the light of the sun and the moon are actually mixtures of light and darkness. They're not actual light. Actual light doesn't work the same way. It's not the light of the sun. It's not the light that, that illuminates a room. It's a deeper, more substantial light that gets um, diffused into our world and then manifests as the light that physics might, hmm. might measure. And the other thing that the other parallel is that humanity in the Manichaean system seems to form a kind of bridge between the two worlds, the world of demons and the world of light, which makes it very similar to, for example, the Tibetan metaphysical system with the six realms and the humans kind of in the middle um, as, as the, the intermediaries between the world of the gods and the world of the, the demons and hungry ghosts. And in this story, it seems like the fulcrum or the, the, the pivot spelled the doom of the angel was precisely this one boy, this this original man, this Adam figure who was able to pull down the world of light and sink it into darkness, but it was also mm. could have also done the opposite. Um, so th that kind of Manichaean picture for me is is telling. And it's an interesting place maybe to start talking about what's going on in this story. One thing I find interesting is also thinking about color, where color is in this, mm. you know, when the narrator tells us about the, the moment that he willingly, perversely goes back to those dreams and, and serves them and um, allows, offers himself up to them and thereby dooms the angel. The description is, then the infinite whiteness itself was flooded with the colors of countless faces and forms, a blank sky suddenly dense with rainbows, until everything was so saturated with revels and thick with frenzy that it took on the utter blackness of the old time. Right. And in the blackness I awoke screaming for all the world. I found that very interesting. Um, the idea that, you know, he keeps associating the angel with white. And that is not by any means unique to this story. I think that pretty much any, if you asked anybody to picture in their mind's eye, an angel, it would be this sort of like white being, um, which doesn't mean like racially white or anything. You just imagine like white wings and white garments and just uh, a, a white effulgence or radiance of light. And as we all know, white is the kind of color of no color that contains all the colors. And what seems to happen is that the narrator breaks that whiteness. He, he causes a fracture in it. And through this fracture, prismatically, all of these colors yeah. begin to spill into existence. And it, it, to me, feels like a figure of manifestation. It's a way of picturing by using a kind of chromatic imagery, something that's a good deal more abstract, which is the idea of manifestation. The whiteness in this can be sort of like a figure for the blank, undifferentiated nothing, the, the, a kind of um, a realm before distinctions. Right. You know, there's a book called uh, The Laws of Form by a guy named Spencer Brown, which is a kind of Boolean algebra, but he, it's done in such a way as to suggest some like deep ideas about like metaphysics. And this book had a vogue in the 60s where a lot of people who had done acid found this book really fascinating. And indeed, a lot of heavy duty meditators also find this book fascinating because they find that it uses mathematical language to describe something of the mystical experiences otherwise 
almost impossible to put into propositional speech, which is the idea that there is a realm prior to distinctions, which means a realm prior to any particular thing existing at all. It, the temptation is to say that it's oneness, but that's actually kind of a mistake because oneness implies a distinction between one and something else that is presumably not one. But Spencer Brown's theory of, of the laws of form allows him to think uh, or at least to express mathematically an idea that evades that very common kind of mistake in language. Now, there's something I want to look for. It's a, actually, it's a great quote. If you hold on for just a second. Yeah, this is a quote from uh, a book by Ramsey Dukes called Words Made Flesh, which explores his, uh, an idea I mean, I explored an idea in the early 70s that now has become almost a commonplace, which is uh, simulation theory, which has gotten something of a vogue among weirdo tech billionaires in Silicon Valley who want to break themselves out of the simulation of all fucking things. Anyway, <laughs> Dukes is using the mathematics of Spencer Brown's laws of form to get at the paradoxical flux and interdependence between one, two, and nothing. Quote, an undifferentiated space is a sort of zero in its own terms. It is tempting to argue that it is not a zero, but rather a unity, for it is surely one space. But we can, in fact, only recognize the oneness by stepping outside or mentally separating ourselves from that nothingness and looking back at it. As soon as the first difference split or mark is made within the nothingness, it has defined a unit. However, the existence of the one mark creates a duality, the marked and the unmarked. But this implies a trinity, the marked, the unmarked, and the implied duality between them. But this implies a quaternary, the marked, the unmarked, their duality, and the trinity which includes them. And so on. The apparently harmless act of making a distinction is like cutting a slit in nothingness through which the infinity of integers tumbles into existence. That's brilliant. Isn't that's that? Brilliant. And, you and know, that and is and that's what and that's what the narrator does. He cuts a split in infinity through which all of the uh, integers, all of the, the things of manifestation tumble. Basically, he chooses manifestation for non-manifestation. He chooses something instead of nothing. And that is the act of evil that for which he has to atone or can never atone. In, in The Lord of the Rings, um, there's a similar thing going on with Saruman, right? Because Saruman in Middle Earth is the white of, of the wizards. The, um, mm -hmm. I can't remember what their actual elven name is, but the, the wizards aren't actually human in Lord of the Rings. They're like demigods. Right. Uh, of that group, he is the one who is called the white. He's the purest. He's the strongest. He's the closest to the original, uh, to, to God, Eru, the name of yeah, God that's in, right. in, in Middle Earth. And he, uh, but he falls, right? So he becomes, he's corrupted by Sauron in, uh, in Fellowship of the Ring. And he then announces to Gandalf that he is no longer Saruman the White, but Saruman of the Many Colors. That's right. And, and Saruman of the Many Colors serves the Dark Lord of Mordor, who is the original darkness. So mm -hmm. you can see exactly the same progression here from white to multifarious rainbow colors 
to absolute darkness that you see in that Ligotti passage, that yep. uh, passage from Ligotti. So that 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 fall from non-manifestation to to the heavy um, clotted chaos, what the Greeks called um, highly, right? H I L E, like that 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 thing that receives form, that kind of seething, formless chaos at the bottom. Uh, is is very clearly a part of this of this of this cosmology that that shapes the story. Not only that, but you can also find an analogy in Kabbalah with uh, Ein Sof, which is the the non-manifested the un- God, unmanifest, yeah, the unmanifest at the top of the of the tree of Kabbalah, and Malkuth at the bottom, which is basically that heavy, highly. Um, um, it's not even matter. To call it matter is 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 to kind of miss the point because it doesn't just include material it's not physical it's it's also psychic it's just this this chaotic potential at the bottom uh that needs to be shaped so what what the boy is doing is he's it's basically the the feces of the universe Right, exactly. It's this dingleberry hanging hanging off the bottom of the tree of life. Yeah, it is. And in Kabbalistic in Kabbalistic writings, it's it's often described in very very negatively. Even though mm-hmm. ultimately in the in the system, it has its place. But um, it's kind of the 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 lead that the alchemist tries to turn into gold. Right. That's kind of mm-hmm. the. What's interesting is that he's offered a chance to live in something like this this non-differentiated whiteness and he decides to 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 split it he can't he's tempted yeah. he's such a the minute he does then it's the rainbows and the demons <laughs> yeah uh, which could be the title of the episode <laughs> rainbows um, and demons that would be yeah. a good title culture dreams have a positive like nightmares are negative but dreams are positive mm-hmm. dreams are good uh dreams are fun dream people want to lucid dream people like to record their dreams and learn from their dreams people who are into psychoanalysis we have all these idioms like you know follow your dreams or, right yeah that's the dream like that's what i really want or dreams have become synonymous with wishes right right i like this take this this idea that dreams are monstrous not because I think every dream is monstrous, but because there's something about dreams, uh, philosophically speaking, that can shed light on other things. Okay, so there's this great passage in Gilles Deleuze. <laughs> Again, each, each of us are doing our typical thing. I quote Ramsey Dukes and you quote Deleuze. Right. Uh, but Deleuze has a very useful, or um, where is it? passage in one of the essays in his book, Essays Critical and Clinical. It's an essay called To Have Done with Judgment. And it's one of the um, essays in which Deleuze really clearly positions himself against the very idea of judgment. And by judgment, he means the way I translate it is that judgment is the conclusion drawn by a person who believes that their take on the world and on life is complete enough to warrant a final conclusion. Mm-hmm. It's the magistrate who says, all things considered, I've looked at the whole thing and you are sentenced to uh, 
to jail or to hang right. to being hanged or whatever. That's the kind of figure of the of the judge. Uh, but it's also uh, for Deleuze the whole um, machinery of Christianity as interpreted by Nietzsche, uh, which is rooted in judgment and vengeance. There are parallels here. And in fact, the word purity does occur in Deleuze to describe the alternative to this regime of judgment that people live in. He does call it impure in a way. It's it's basically a fall from this original or uh, trans, transcendental state which we can enter where judgment actually dissolves. This is really present in Ligotti. So the word purity comes up a couple of times in this story. Uh, but there's a story by Ligotti called Purity, in which uh, one of the characters is obsessed with removing impurities from people very cruelly. <laughs> um, but he has three types of impurity. He says that the three great impurities that prevent us from entering the realm of the pure realm are nationhood, religion, and family. So if you look at these three things, religion, nationhood, and family, they're pretty much the pillars of civilization. Now, going back to Deleuze, what Deleuze points out is that th such things as nationhood, family, and religion are actually dreams. They're basically just hallucinatory realities that we accept and abide by, even though in moments of ecstasy, we realize that there's a whole other universe outside these three paradigms that we live in. He says it's not for nothing that Apollo is both the god of judgment and the god of dreams. Because he says basically, and this is something James Joyce says in Ulysses, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. What Joyce is saying is that history, which is fueled or driven by family, religion, and nationhood, is basically a kind of somnambulistic dream um, that we're in. Uh, waving flags, um, you know, honoring gods and all that stuff for Deleuze and for Joyce are literal nightmares, waking dreams that we live in. Mm. So it's perfectly appropriate that Apollo would rule over judgment and dreams because the essence of all three of those impurities, those three realms, is judgment, debt. All these things are founded on debt. If you're if you're part of a nation, if you're a citizen of a nation, you owe something to the nation. If you're born to your to this particular man, you, he's your father. You owe something to him. It's always this infinite debt, and the the system of judgment is absolutely defined by this system of infinite debt. And uh, Deleuze, as a true Nietzschean, is trying to find a way out of this system of infinite debt. And I think that's a little bit what Ligotti is up to as well in in this story. It's that you're trying to break out. Of, of a system of, of judgment. But in this particular story, he's looking at it from the dream end of the spectrum. So this long intro, I'm just going to read uh, just a passage from Deleuze's uh, essay on this. Deleuze writes, The world of judgment establishes itself as in a dream. It is the dream that makes the lots turn, Ezekiel's wheel, and makes the forms pass in procession. In the dream, judgments are hurled into the void without encountering the resistance of a milieu that would subject them to the exigencies of knowledge or experience. This is why the question of judgment is first of all knowing whether one is dreaming or not. Moreover, Apollo is both the god of judgment and the god of dreams. It is Apollo who judges, who imposes limits and imprisons us in an organic form. It is the dream that imprisons life within these forms in whose name life is judged. 
The dream erects walls. It feeds on death and creates shadows. Shadows of all things and of the world. Shadows of ourselves. But once we leave the shores of judgment, we also repudiate the dream in favor of what he calls an intoxication, like a high tide sweeping over us. What we seek in states of intoxication, drinks, drugs, ecstasies, is an antidote to both the dream and judgment. Whenever we turn away from judgment towards justice, we enter into a dreamless sleep. What the four authors, and here he's talking about Nietzsche, Kafka, D.H. Lawrence, and Artaud, Antony Artaud, what the four authors denounce in the dream is a state that is still too immobile and too directed, too governed. Groups that are deeply interested in dreams, like psychoanalysts or surrealists, are also quick to form tribunals that judge and punish in reality, a disgusting mania frequent in dreamers. In his reservations concerning surrealism, Artaud insists that it is not thought that collides with the kernel of a dream, but rather dreams that bounce off a kernel of thought that escapes them. So whereas the surrealists would put the dream above thought, uh, Artaud and Deleuze are, putting, are saying, no, the dream is a kind of parasite, which thought enables us to transcend and escape. And I found that interesting. I don't know if I 100%, 100% agree with it, but it sure is a, a provoking thought, a thought-provoking uh, consideration. I do like the point that, um, that uh, psychoanalysts and surrealists uh, sometimes become the most doctrinaire and Stalinoid of persons. Like you think of André Breton, uh, the um, sort of Pope of surrealism. Or Freud <laughs> and, for that matter. <laughs> or Freud, who were just like such, uh, you know, so doctrinaire, so willing to, uh, you know, it's always about like excommunications. People are being read out of movements. Um, it's almost like a parody of uh, a hyperactive faculty of judgment. Um, so there must be something in that. And it's and I like the idea that in dreams, judgments just kind of let fly. There's no, there's nothing to slow them down. There's no, um, uh, there's no friction, you know, so like you could be in a dream and, uh, you know, you can encounter some being in your dream and that being decides it's time to kill you. That is their judgment on you. And there's no reason for it. There's, so there's no possible reason to object or any grounds of justice that you can appeal to. So, you know, you sometimes have dreams where you're like, oh, shit. Okay, so I'm going to die. <laughs> you know, you, you almost have, have to be incredibly sort of quiescent about it because there's nothing, there's no structure of thought or logic for judgments to rub up against and slow down. You know, when life, when you're, uh, what you, I don't know, if you get in trouble as a kid or as an adult, for that matter, you find yourself under arrest, you're in the back of a police car and you're being taken in. The classic thing and the classic response is, am I dreaming? Is this happening? Yeah, this feels like a dream. Yeah, it's true. How can I stop this from going on? Or if you see an accident or something happens to you, like... Yeah. I think what Deleuze is saying is that the dream is much more than what happens when we go to sleep. Dreams are something that determine a lot of what happens in the world. We talked before about um, game, the, the, the idea of games and how a courtroom is a kind of game, right? A trial is a kind of game. We agree that here this evidence will be accepted, but not that for this technical reason. There are all these rules that are completely, in a sense, completely arbitrary 
and one must play by those rules in order to play the game. But the rule, the the the, the stakes are couldn't be higher than in a yeah. trial. So a trial is a kind of game with real with with real world stakes that are right. literally life and death in in the many places. So. I think I I completely agree with what he's getting at in the sense that a lot of what we believe to be necessary is actually pretty contingent. Uh, a nation is completely contingent. It's not a necessary eternal reality, um, nor are familial the familial structures we use to define what a family is and what children owe their parents. So I I I'm I don't see where um, I I would disagree. I mean. I guess where I would disagree is, you know what it is for me? I am against purity. I, I am radically against purity. Oh, so am I. And I think Deleuze is as well. He's not arguing for a purity. Yeah, but I'm thinking back to I'm thinking back to that Ligotti story that you were paraphrasing. I mean, which I haven't read, so I can't say anything intelligent about it. Um, but the idea of, but there is a point of view, at least from what I understand of your pricey of that story, there is a point of view from which um, family, nationhood, and religion are impurities that, um, and they're impurities because they're, they partake of the dream uh, and of the fatality of the dream. And, you know, there is something, the more I'm chewing over that idea, the more plausible it becomes, because I think about like ascetics, um, yeah. Like, for example, Buddhist uh, or, or Hindu ascetics who seek to die to – or Christian ascetics who die to the world. And what they are dying to very particularly is family and doctrine, you know, religious doctrine um, and the claims of the larger contingent community. Right. Call it call it nation or call it what you will. Uh, I mean, if you take a long enough step back historically, at a certain point, we can't really talk about nations, right? But nevertheless, whatever more general thing the word nation stands in for. The temporal order, right? Um, right. The temporal order. Um, these are the very things that ascetics die to, you know, in, um, in monks in the Buddhist tradition are called home leavers. Yeah. And people like me who are, uh, or at least have been at various times in my life, very serious about practice, but that's pra practice as a householder. Householder, right, right. You know, and so like, especially in Theravadan Buddhism, I think there's a sense of like, well, if you are, you, you need to leave home in order to truly walk down that, that path, that, that purified path. And I'm not saying anything against people who choose that path, which I take to be a path of purity or path of purification. These are people who really are trying to live outside a dream. And it's true. It's just sort of like so much of what we take to be absolutely and inarguably and non-negotiably real is in fact a kind of co consensus dream. A consensual right. hallucination, or 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 if you like, a game that we're all participating in and and treating as if it's completely real. And these are the kind of ideas that are like commonplace in um, Advaita mysticism, right? Right. Um, and when I say that I am against purity, ultimately I'm against that. Not that I'm against people who want to take seek that path for themselves or, or who find meaning in it. Uh, that would be arrogant bullshit. But 
I'm talking about just as a existential thing, as like a choice that presents itself to me personally. Right. I choose the the motley colors. I choose, you know, Malkut. I choose the dream. I choose all the, the, the garbage and the impurity because I believe that it is by taking a header fur, fully into that, that a certain kind of sanctity, a higher sanctity is always possible. And in fact, there's another Ligati story from Nocturie, um, the title of which now escapes me, but we talked about it on the show before. The Order of Illusion. Ligati perhaps suggests as much. Again, you know, I don't want to be doing the very thing that we start off saying that we weren't doing, and that is to reduce Ligati's fiction to a series of dumb, dumbass allegories. But, but I think that that there's that tension, uh, at least between purity and filth and sanctity and degradation, and sometimes these things trade places. In, in weird ways. And this loops back to where we began, uh, or where I began, the line that I quoted, the prophet gained, the narrator's talking about his restless nights of dreams, the prophet gained is the awful opulence of the dream, a rich and swollen world nourished by the exhaustion of the flesh. And that's a prophet. <laughs> yeah. The awful well, that... opulence of the dream. And this speaks to me. It's, it just so happens in recent nights. I've had nights of dreams where I wake up and I can't remember my dreams, but I feel oppressed by them, uh, mm. like vaguely disturbed or saddened or uh, just uh, stirred up somehow obscurely and I don't feel rested and I feel like every night I'm I'm in for fresh struggles with the awful opulence of this dream world and yet there is something about that that is uh however exhausting also like that's kind of where it's at for me yeah and I think I think Ligotti would agree in fact his purity themed stories tend to um arrive at the conclusion that 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 purity just breeds more madness <laughs> that the idea yeah. of purity just can you know and similarly Deleuze uh his solution is certainly not asceticism, asceticism which he was dead set against and I'd be much more ca categorical as well in my thinking about that those sort of ascetic practices than you were there um that for Deleuze the the interestingly his solution is magic his solution as he mm. describes it very poetically and strangely in the passage i read i mean this is the part i haven't read uh but he describes how what what one does isn't you don't stop dreaming what you do is you become what he calls an insomniac through the practice of ecstatic um activities through ecstatic practices you become you 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 find a new kind of insomnia where the dream when you can master the dream and submit the dream to thought so what he he, and he quotes a few passages from the various authors he named there uh, including one from Kafka where Kafka is describing a character who sends uh, uh, a spirit body out into the world while he while, while he lies in bed, the kind of out of body experience or an experience of weird clairvoyance or something. So Deleuze's solution is basically to master the dream, not to negate it. Um, and this is something that J 
Joshua Ramey explores at length in his book, The Hermetic Deleuze. And yeah, I mean, ultimately, it seems to me that if nationhood, family, and uh, religion are dreams, then certainly asceticism or the idea that we can escape the dream world is another dream. And Mm. probably uh, the one that is most likely to incite or encourage uh, judgment. Hmm. And and this is Nietzsche's whole thing. Uh, is, asceticism is the absolute consummation of the spirit of vengeance. Hmm. So the solution, it's not an individual thing for Nietzsche. It's there's one way, uh, which is your way. And, you know, when he says, may you become a bridge to the overman or may you live your, I don't remember the exact quote, but live your life. What he's saying is that you you, you have to work with this world. You can't escape it. If you try yeah. to escape it, you're trying to murder it. If you're trying to murder it, you're a murderer of worlds. So mm. there's no room for asceticism in Nietzsche. Mm. My instinct is that there's something to that. So I, w- I would argue for something like, like what Deleuze is saying, which is, you know, it's something as simple as a night out drinking, which I don't do anymore. Um, but I remember what that meant. It meant escaping the world of judgment. Um, yeah. and, and, and we look down on that. It's irresponsible. It's this, it's that. But um, tell that to the guy who's going out for a night of drinking. What the fuck does he <laughs> care about your goddamn judgment? You know? So like... <laughs> Quite so. We're, we're, we're stuck here and we need to make it work. And um, the key thing in Deleuze is that you must submit your dreams to your thoughts. And uh, one of the last things he said um, publicly in his life was, um, if you ever find yourself in, 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 in the dream of the other and the other person's dream, you're fucked. This right. is what Alice in Wonderland, Lewis Carroll is all about that. Alice is stuck in somebody else's dream. You know, Alice's strategy is always roll with the punches, you know, whatever they say, whatever nonsense they say, try to up it with, with more nonsense, try to play the game. Stay one step ahead of it. Stay one step ahead of the nonsense. So is that, so it's, and that is for Deleuze, the figure of the magician or the sorcerer. Yeah. He never says it. in so not, not in so many words, but that's Ramey's interpretation. Yeah. And it's clear when you read it, he refers to occult stuff all the time, but he just never, he couldn't do that in the French academia of his time. Here's a question. You know, you have to subject your dreams to your thoughts. Isn't that what orthodox psychoanalysis does? Isn't this the exact move that James Hillman criticizes Jung and Freud and pretty much all of the various kind of um, uh, oneiromancers of, of the modern? Uh, isn't that what he accuses them of doing? That Like what he wants in The Dream of the Underworld, which, by the way, we should totally do that book yeah, sometime. He kind of says, like, you're trying to strip mine the dream world. I remember hearing an interview with somebody who was a um, Buddhist meditator who was really interested in dreams, who did a lot of dream work. And somebody was asking him, this was on a podcast that I couldn't possibly tell you who this was, and this was years ago. Um, but somebody was asking him, well, what do you think about lucid dreaming? And he had nothing but, like, disgust and aversion to the idea of lucid dreaming because he's like, look, everything in your life is either subjected to your control or belongs to the realm of things you're trying to assert control over. But dreams are not that. Dreams, that's the one commonly experienced thing where you are subjected to 
you know, fantastic things that are not limited by what you, you know, what you're capable of thinking or imagining or what you want, right? And as such, dreams are really, really valuable because you're encountering something radically other. It's not just the way the, the mind of ignorance goes through the world trying to turn everything into a copy of itself, right? right? Like you can do that as much as you want, but when you go to sleep and you dream, dreams won't dreams aren't having it. Dreams are going to show you whatever dreams are showing you. And he's like, you know, it's the one wild undeveloped space and you want to build a McDonald's there. I remember him saying that. And he's just like, lucid dreaming is like, you want to build like a Starbucks in this wild undeveloped space. It's the Mm. one place that you don't, that no one is fucked with and you want to fuck with it. Don't basically was his advice. And I thought that was very interesting. I've had loose, I've had lucid dreams on occasion, but it's funny. I've never felt the desire to cultivate that skill. Well, I wouldn't describe lucid dreams as a situation where you're in full control. That's for sure. My lucid Mm. dreams have always been a hopeless attempt to try to wrestle with the dream. And I don't think many people get to pick exactly what their lucid dreams are going to be. Maybe some people get to a certain level where dreaming is just like imagining, in which case, what the fuck was the point? Um, (laughs) No, I think Deleuze would respond to that by saying there's a difference between the type of thought you'll find in classical psychoanalysis and what Deleuze would call thought, which is something altogether different. Thought is not like something common. Thought isn't just computing concepts. Thought is is creative and it's rare and it's um, dangerous. So when he says, submit your dreams to thought, and he doesn't actually say that, but when he implies that, what I understand is the the, the forces that determine and govern and and, and form you, um, those forces are in yourself. And if you can connect with that creative force, you don't need to be governed. And, sub- and subjected to the nightmare of history and all that. You can actually pick your own path. So thought is just that process by which one discovers oneself, which is a creative process, not a, not a, not a um, cognitive or, or rational- Like an intellectual or, or process. intellectual pursuit. It's not intellectual at all. And so I think that's what he's talking about. And what he ends up describing is a kind of thought that is a kind of uh, mystical or um, occult experience or an, arti- or an artistic experience. I or mean, what, artistic, yeah. What you're describing about is like, instead of thought, could you use, would the word expression be any closer to our meaning? Absolutely, yeah. I think ultimately the word expression comes closer to it. Mm. Um, but... Because then that occurs, then it occurs to me that that seems to me to be a not bad description of what Ligotti is doing. Exactly. And there's the difference between Ligotti, the nonfiction writer, and Ligotti... The fiction writer, and that's the essay that I wrote that you mentioned at the beginning, is all is about that. It's about how uh, the persona of Ligotti that's developed over time. This idea of Ligotti as an antinatalist, as a nihilist, whose stories are basically ways for him to communicate his nihilism, is is actually um, not helpful. I think when you're reading Ligotti, because what Ligotti is doing in his fiction is much more creative, expansive, and ultimately life-affirming than uh, his nonfiction would lead you to think. Just as there's an awful opulence to the world of dreams that the boy in the story experiences night after night, there's an opulence to Ligotti's prose, which makes the ugly 
and the grotesque and the horrible makes all those things beautiful. And by making them beautiful, it's almost alchemical what's going on in Ligotti. He, for me, reading his work has always been uh, a, almost kind of redemptive or sal uh, salvific kind of experience to the extent that it allows me to accept more of the world. And he's beautifying what we refuse to look at. He's showing us that even there, there's beauty. Yeah. And I think that ultimately Ligotti is affirming beauty in his work. And that's why I love it. Um, and that's why I re I'll read him before I'll read any number of truly nihilistic authors who use fiction as a didactic tool for um, delivering uh, the message. Yeah. A, a depressing message. For delivering a, a message of despair and hopelessness. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting because we're, you know, we were talking earlier about Ligotti's aversion to writing fiction that tries to kind of convey a message or to make a point. And reminds me of something that the humorist P.J. O'Rourke said. He's a conservative uh, humorist. And so he was making fun of progressives um, and saying, yeah, you know, liberals always want humor to uh, make a point. And he said, but laughter is involuntary and points are not. And whatever Ligotti is after is not a voluntary response or an elective response or a contrived or intellectualized response. Like put it this way, there's a little bit of a puzzle. Like, okay, if Ligotti or any number of artists, including yourself, say, art is not allegory, art isn't about points, then if we interpret that work of art, how, what is there for us to grab onto if it isn't some kind of verbalizable propositional content that we can then discuss, like for example, on this show? I mean, all that stuff about the breaking of the white light into the rainbow of colors and Relating that to Saruman and um, relating that to ideas of the manifest and the unmanifest and Spencer Brown and blah, blah, blah. Those are ideas, right? We got, I, we plumbed ideas out of a piece of expressive culture that we started off by saying, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't just try to plumb ideas out of this. And yet, if you, if you take that as a, a prohibition, like thou shalt not uh, mine a piece of expressive culture for ideas, then what the fuck are you supposed to do exactly? Well, then this podcast wouldn't exist. Then you and I would never have anything to talk about. I wouldn't have anything to do as a professor. Um, and maybe that's not on its own a bad thing. Maybe that doesn't argue, that doesn't necessarily argue for the practice, right? But it does suggest, okay, then what exactly is the relationship of the aesthetic utterance, the, the short story by Thomas Ligotti, and points or ideas? Well, I, There's a way, and, and, and it seems to me that there is a distinction to be made, and that distinction is sort of analogous between, or homologous to the kind of colonizing of dreams that James Hillman doesn't like in orthodox psychoanalysis versus the way he wants to engage with dreams somehow and after all ends up writing a book about it, A Dream in the Underworld. Um, 
It's like saying it without saying it. It's like having ideas without somehow giving into a certain way of intellectualizing the work. Yeah. I don't know how to express it, but there is something there that it's just eluding my grasp. I think that it's interestingly in that very essay that Ligotti wrote, The Dark Beauties of Unheard of Horrors, where he says that it's not, it's bad to, one shouldn't reduce stories to, uh, kind of a boilerplate or like a, a simple didactic point, he then goes on to interpret Lovecraft's story, the music of Eric Zahn, and does precisely, well, he doesn't do that. There's two, there are two types of criticism. There's the critic who believes that in interpreting a story, he has exhausted it, that he has translated the story into the point it was trying to make. Right. And then there's the critic who inhabits an aesthetic universe and knows that to interpret is to dance. And ultimately, the points you're going to make when you look and experience a work of art and you try to translate it into, into thoughts, you try to, to use it as a, as a drive for new thoughts, the points you're going to make are going to belong on the same aesthetic plane as the story mm, does. Yeah. Because that's where everything begins. And that's, what, it, that's how I it, see weird studies. It's that yeah. we're just putting out more art it might not be anywhere near the art we're discussing right. but ultimately everything belongs in the imaginal plane yeah i like that and that dance is like laughter in the sense like it's involuntary whereas points are not Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>